Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Poof. Poof. What if your wand worked? What if you could create whatever you wanted in an instant? Poof. And it's done. Poof. I mean, what sound do magic wands make anyway? Have you ever tried to bring about a change in your life? And maybe you have a a visualization board and morning affirmations you read and time clicks by and years maybe go by and you don't feel like you've achieved it? What if all all that happened with just a poof and it was done? Tonight we're going to talk about some really dynamic stuff. The topic tonight is persistent awakening in just six weeks or less. And our guest tonight is Dr. Jeffrey Martin. We're going to bring him on in just a minute. But let's get back to that poof thing. If, If we had the power, which the sages like Jesus said, poof, asking it is given the, the faith of a mustard seed, poof, there it is, poof, there it is. How would how would your life evolve if your wand started working again? If things that seemed to take time all of a sudden didn't take any time and you could accomplish the top ten things on your wish list by the end of this minute, poof, Poof. Well, what is this this um, fabric of existence that we're living in? This this endless stream of consciousness in our persona. Chances are pretty good you've got a physical body. I've got a physical body. And yet, if you look at the seven billion plus flavors of physical bodies. Just having a physical body is no representation of what you can or cannot achieve. And then there's this endless source of consciousness, this eternal stream of awareness that flows from within our being. I think that's the stuff that's got the kick to it, but how do you get a fulcrum on that? How do you how do you put a meter on that or a valve or a vacuum tube and and modulate it to your will, so to speak. I think tonight's conversation is going to be over the top. I think we should get right to it, and let's let's jump in. Again, the topic tonight, persistent awakening in just six weeks, the fast track to nirvana in just six weeks or less. And our guest tonight is Dr. Jeffrey Martin. Jeffrey is an academic researcher, serial entrepreneur, technologist, and investor who specializes in advancing the highest forms of human well-being. We could all use some more well-being. For over a decade, he has conducted the largest international study on fundamental well-being, which includes the types of consciousness commonly known as enlightenment, non-duality, the peace that passeth understanding, unitive experience, and hundreds of other terms. This resulted in the first reliable cross-cultural 
and pan-traditional classification system for these types of experiences. More recently, he has used this research to make systems available to help people obtain profound psychological benefits in a rapid, secular, reliable, and safe way. He is currently the director for the Center for the Study of Non-Symbolic Consciousness, a research professor and director at the Transformative Technology Lab in Silicon Valley, and a lecturer at Stanford University. To learn more, you can visit his website, drjeffreymartin.com. Join me in welcoming Dr. Jeffrey Martin to the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Boy, I really like how your work has not only kind of targeted the the well-being of our human condition, uh, perhaps individually and collectively, but you've also Mm -hmm. um, really had a broad swath, if you will, with a cross-cultural reach that your platforms have established. Um, Absolutely. What... What brought you to this point? I mean, did you were you born and on day one it's like I got to roll up my sleeves and get to it, or how'd you come about to this? <laughs> yeah, that's it. You know, I rolled out of uh, the womb, and uh, it's like it's kind of annoying to my parents. It's all I ever talked about. No, none of that. <laughs> the uh, it's really it all started about 15 years ago, more than that, a little bit more than that. Um, officially started about 15 years ago. Um, and I just, you know, I had had a good run, um, and it just seemed like despite all of that, there were people that were happier than I was. And I put in a lot of effort at that point into well-being and, you know, studying things about it, trying to improve it in myself. And a lot of that had worked very well. Um, but it seemed like I was still missing something and, that is the fate of the human condition, ultimately. You know, when we talk about the, the human condition itself, it is that sort of core animal nature that we all have, which is that sense of discontentment. You know, every animal, just for its own sense of survival, has this sense in every moment that something might not be right. And if you're a very simple animal, you deal with that one way. If you're a very complex animal, like a human being with all sorts of self-representation and stuff like that, um, it can it gets almost crazy in terms of you know what happens inside all of our heads and whatnot with the, all the negative self-talk that people have and you know all of that. And so um, it was clear that despite everything that I'd looked into, all the seminars and all the research and everything else, that there was something still missing. Uh, and I began to wonder uh, if it was possible to, you know, take the next step to try to, you know, really sort of solve that core piece, that core problem of the human condition. And so I quit what I was doing at the time, which was a lot of business and technology stuff. And I uh, went back to school to uh, add another degree <laughs> or so to uh, the ones I already had, which were funny, and um, learn really how to deal, to deal with this from a scholarly standpoint, you know, how to research it from more of an academic standpoint. I had technology research, I had business research, but I never really had any scholarly research training, you know, up to that point. And so um, as a consequence of that, um, 
you know, here we find ourselves. I set out to find, you know, the people that were I thought the happiest people in the world and see if I could join them. And that's where we're at. Well, I like that. Now, you talk about happiness and well-being. Are they mm-hmm. the same thing or is there a difference between them? Oh, nobody agrees on that. You know, it's an interesting thing. There's so much debate in the academic world about it. There's so much debate in the public world about it. Uh, What we find in our research is that at a certain point, you go beyond happiness, if that's uh, something that that the listeners can understand. So the sense is really, uh, in fact, in our measures, in our our, uh, research programs, um, I started off by just asking about happiness, and then I realized that as people were sort of changing and they were going through these transformations, I really had to have both happiness questions and well-being questions, because at a certain point, the happiness stuff almost kind of became irrelevant to them. Uh, but well-being really, really made sense, and that's ultimately why we wound up calling it fundamental well-being on the on sort of the public-facing side of our world. Uh, we call it persistent non-symbolic experience or ongoing non-symbolic experience on the academic side. Um, and so they're, they're really not the same thing. And, and in, in many ways, the more complex you get about trying to talk about happiness and well-being and think about happiness and well-being, uh, the more people sort of get confused by each other's definitions. But there's one interesting thing about happiness, I think, and that's that uh, there was a guy named Ed Diener at the uh, University of Illinois who was really sort of one of the pioneers in researching happiness. Um, It's not past tense. He still is. Um, And he really was criticized for years by subjectively measuring people's happiness. So he'd go up to you and he'd say, you know, how scale of one to 10, you know, how happy are you or whatever, you know, that type of thing. It's a little oversimplified, but that's the gist. Um, And, you know, this criticism was constantly that, you know, well, one person's happiness can't be another person's happiness. If this person says they're an eight, you know, and another person says they're an eight. How can we ever know that that's the same eight and, you know, all of that? And then brain imaging comes along, and uh, it t- turns out to, like, light the brain up very similarly if you say eight and I say eight. Um, and so even though there's this messiness in terms of this terminology, that we're still, it turns out, pretty effective at communicating you know, between us around topics of happiness and well-being and the differences between happiness and well-being and whatnot. It, it, it's sort of one of those things that, that is easy to critique and looks messier as you're critiquing it than it actually is in practicality, which I think is kind of cool. Well, I, I like what you're saying. You know, um, I know the term well-being has been around for a while, but like if I talk about love or God or something like that, people instantly have this baggage of what that means, this this kind of sure. um, well-rooted idea in their noggin. And mm-hmm. what strikes me is like um, in the electronic arena, there's these little computers called Adrenos, and you can program mm-hmm. them. But my point is they didn't use the term program they came up with a new term called a sketch. <laughs> and so all right. the kids, all, all the 10-year-olds that say, I don't know how to program, well, you're not programming, <laughs> you're just writing a sketch. Well, it's quite right. literally programming, I promise you. But by by breaking <laughs> the old symbol apart, it created an instantaneous opportunity to develop a new relationship. So exactly. this well-being... 
for me, it it seems like a kind of a boon or a, a real um, vantage to because nobody's got so much dogma on that phrase as much as perhaps happiness or you know contentment <laughs> or or things to that effect. Yeah, I think that's true, and that's also why we went with, um, you know, our term on the academic side of the fence, persistent non-symbolic experience, an ongoing non-symbolic experience, because they're, you know, who's ever heard of that, right? And so we were first right. contacting people that experienced things like enlightenment, non-duality, persistent mystical experience, all that. Um, and we were, you know, asking them to participate in our research, you know, more or less, they kept hanging up the phone on us because they would say, you know, listen, this is not stuff that can be studied uh, by science, you know, psychologists, neuroscientists, blah, 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 that, you know, you're, you're never going to understand this with those tools. Um, and so we started playing with language, trying to find a phrase that would have a different response that didn't have that baggage, as you're pointing out. And there was a, a a friend of mine, Susie Cook Greuter, um, in 2000 in a paper used the term non-symbolically mediated, uh, and we basically grabbed that word and made it non-symbolic, or grabbed that phrase and made it non-symbolic and threw it out there when we started talking to potential participants. And that's the one that people sort of went, you know, they kind of paused, and they were like, you know, yeah, okay, well, what do you, you know, tell me more about your what you're wanting me to do, right? And so you're exactly right. You know, that's so incredibly important. That blank slate that still speaks to it in some way, right? right? When you hear the phrase, even though you don't know what it means, it sounds like it's in the right direction. That's very important. Very nice. Well, okay, well, if we're going to play with symbols, what about the non-symbolic symbol? I mean, the word non-symbolic as a symbol. (laughs) If we're going to mangle the crap out of crap, let's get to it. So when you take when you take the notion of non-symbolic consciousness, um, what differentiates that from traditional consciousness? That's a good question, and I and it's it's interesting because for us we use this term all the time, and we've used it for over ten years at least, longer than that I'm sure. Let's see, it's. 20, so probably at least 13 years in the academic world. Um, And so uh, it's a word that we use to attract participants, but it's not a word initially that, you know, that emerged from the research, right? And so we didn't like look at all of the data and say, what's the perfect term for this, right? Aha, non-symbolic, let's use that. Um, And so because of that, lots of times people will want to, you know, maybe hang a little bit more on that word than they should. But on the flip side of that, it is the word that people identified enough with to be willing to participate in the research, you know, that we're experiencing these things as well. So there is clearly a resonance there. So for us, it's a bucket term. Um, And it's, we basically define it. Pardon? I love that. That's beautiful. It, it because you like the effect of it, not per se the word itself, but the effect it gives you. Exactly. Not word. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so it's, but it's given us the opportunity to have a relatively blank slate word, except for what Susie said about it, to, um, you know, to really define, um, in many ways, uh, a new space within the research landscape, which is, which is important. 
So you can think of it as a bucket term. You know, anyone who says that, anyone who sort of represents any of these types of what are often thought of as spiritual or religious states, we have hundreds of these terms cataloged, close to 300 terms at this point uh, cataloged. And we're not alone in that. There, there are people that have cataloged hundreds of uh, descriptions of things like, you know, enlightenment, non-duality, God consciousness, unitive consciousness, shamanic ecstasy, all these different things uh, before. Um, and so we've, I'd say we've probably added maybe 70 or 80 to, to the sort of corpus that came before us. But um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, I think if we just, you know, you have a great audience, they're going to be familiar with these types of terms. Uh, and so I think just saying, you know, this is kind of our academic bucket term, if you will, for those type of things. That's probably good enough. Well, it's a heavy lifter. It, it gets the work done. I like it. So um, it what I really like is that you're folding Western Western academic um, values or measuring stick. I mean, because consciousness yeah. can be a slippery little fish. I mean, if I sit here and I say I love my mother an awful lot, you don't pull out a micrometer or a spectrum analyzer or a network analyzer. You can't, <laughs> you can't measure that. So, um, Not yet. Well, that's what I like. I mean, we've had uh, Dr. Dean Radin, the chief uh, scientist of, of the Noetic. Sure, sure, I know Dean. And Yeah, uh, we've had all kinds of guests, and we've talked about all this stuff in length, but I want your perspective. Um, so, so as you fold in the Western academic um, measuring stick, if you will, uh, how do you how do you go about quantifying or or appeasing the analytical mind of the Western academic constituent? Well, yeah, and I don't know that it's an appeasing necessarily. There's a, there's a tremendous power to these tools. You know, I mean, if you think about it, I, I mean, imagine if it's a thousand years ago, what people's representation of the weather must have been. Right. I mean, it was this very magical sort of representation of it. Right. Uh, and we can just go sort of thing by thing by thing by thing by thing, sort of imagining back to what would have been the case. Um, I think the strange thing about this area is here you have huge systems of belief. You know, you have lots of Eastern religions, you have Western religions, um, and they're all sort of insisting that there's this internal experience that people are having and have had throughout, you know, recorded time, essentially. Um, and yet, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem like, you know, science has taken much of a look at that, much of a look at that. And in fact, when I was first starting down this road, one of the first things that became really clear to me was how political it was within the scientific world. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time figuring, trying to figure out, okay, how do I not get painted into a corner so that what we come up with results-wise isn't, you know, sort of deemed politically irrelevant and, you know, can't get presented anywhere or isn't taken seriously or whatever else. Uh, and so it was odd because within the community of people we wanted to research, there was this resistance to, oh, science can't study me, right? I'm beyond science. 
Uh, and then within the scientific establishment itself, there was sort of the same view, like, oh, that's not something science can or should really study. Uh, you should pick something else, you know, if you, if you want to do research. Um, and so it was, it was this sort of bizarre double whammy where we've been kind of fighting on both fronts. But to me, it seems just like everything else. I mean, the, the tools of sort of scientific investigation have been applied systematically to nearly everything at this point. Uh, and somehow this was an area that it, it, it had kind of been overlooked. I mean, there were meditation studies and you know, people that researched meditation for the last 50 plus years with, you know, some brain measurements and uh, stuff like that. But in, but in terms of trying to get to use the tools of science to sort of get to these core claims of these individuals to really get beyond the philosophy, there's, there's you know, a few major schools of philosophy around this stuff. In the West, there's a common core group which says these are all basically the same things under the hood, whether you're saying you're enlightened or non-dual or you have the sacred heart of Jesus or whatever. There's a group that basically is uh, Katzian, basically, from a guy named Katz. Uh, and, you know, their argument is none of these things are the same. You know, enlightenment is different than non-duality is different than the sacred heart of Jesus. And it's all just programming in the mind that, you know, you can't part. Two people can't have the same core experience, blah, blah. Uh, and then there's sort of a hybrid version of that a little bit with a guy named Ferrer's, Jorge Ferrer's um, kind of many shores model, um, participatory model. And so there was all this philosophical debate. You know, Ken Wilber wrote tons of books around the philosophy of this stuff that became very popular in the last 20, 30 years and all of that. And I like Ken a lot. I respect him a lot. Um, but nobody had really gotten down to trying to do hardcore research on this, and that seemed a little nuts. And frankly, I never would have either if I wasn't just trying to get happier. I mean, I wasn't out there trying to say, hey, let's apply the tools of science to this for the heck of it. Uh, you know, I was like, okay, there's some key missing piece inside me, and it would be really great if I could if, – if it's possible to get that, I want it. So how do I get it? And I took the hard road, right? I mean, I basically had to, you know, nobody else has to take the hard road now because we've got these protocols that just work for people. Uh, but I had to spend like 15 years and a ton of time and money and other resources and whatnot sort of getting to it. And so to me, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's just, you know, just hadn't been done. And I don't think there's anything special about me or us or our team or anything like that. I mean, I think we just came along at the right time. We had enough resources to do it because of what I'd done in my life before this. Um, and, you know, the communications networks were in place. The Internet was there. You could get to people. And you could reach them uh, physically and electronically to build a relationship before physically. And it just, you know, it was just sort of the right time, right place. We had the right resources and the right orientation. Uh, and we wound up being the ones that did it. I love it. Well, I, I find it curious that you found uh, uh, that there was a, a political stigma related to enlightenment or consciousness in general. But, sure. you know, talking about politics, this is the day after the first presidential debate in the United States of America for the 2020 elections. Last night, the vast majority of humanity described it as a unbridled circus of, of misfits, and and <laughs> I think it's a classic uh, example of being able to be happy and then getting caught up in the dogma, caught up in the 
all the minutia of this atomic hologram were were propagating through. Um, how is it that happiness can be so arbitrarily disconnected from the uh, karmic tsunami we're watching play out? Because I mean, for me, I'm when I see such upheaval in the collective, I throw my hands up like a touchdown because we've been drowning in <laughs> in dogma and normal's not going to fix a effing thing. Normal just means more of the same. We don't need. C4, we need we need gigantic upheaval of of our stigmas and dogmas if we're going to make any kind of serious ground. And this year seems like a, a gift from God as far as turning everything on its head. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I don't know. We're like a month away, huh? From knowing the answer <laughs> to that, um, I have no clue how that one's going to turn out. But well, well, what's interesting, before, I think, is from a consciousness standpoint, is that um, at its heart, what really happens, you know, there, there's, it turns out that there is many different types of this experience. And so the, I think the thing that's interesting is that kind of all of the philosophers are right, right? And so you can, you know, if you come to me and you're a common core theorist, um, like I can pull out data that justifies your philosophy. If you come to me and you're a Cassian type theorist, I can pull out data that justifies your philosophy. If Jorge comes to me and he's like, you know, hey, you know, Jeffrey, do you have some data for me that can help, you know, prove the whole many shores thing and my participatory spirituality model? I got plenty of data. Uh, that looks, and it just depends on sort of the level of the psychological stack that we're talking about. The reason that those philosophical arguments could rage in such a lively way for so long is that in part, they're all right. It just depends on the part of the psychological stack. It's like each philosophy school sort of picked its own part of the stack, right? So at the very, very deepest level, what cuts across all of the different types of this experience is I think a, an, an important what I can only guess, frankly, is a evolutionary change that's been happening in humanity for thousands of years. Who knows how many, because we haven't written stuff down for that long. Um, and it's essentially a shifting away from that, what one might call the dominance, the needed dominance in the average human being for moment to moment on edge survival, you know, to just, to just be constantly vigilant regarding survival because we're living in just, you know, such a dangerous environment that any minute now a wild animal might rip my arm off or I might, you know, whatever, right? Um, that was the majority of human history. It's been a very, very tiny part of human history and even for only part of humanity right now that it's not really the case for, you know, you and I and more or less, you know, I, I assume mostly everybody that's listening to this uh, show live very, very safe lives. Fundamentally, we live very, very safe lives. I don't have any concern about somebody bursting into this room and gunning me down while I'm on the phone with you or some wild animal coming in and tearing my arm off or, you know, anything else, right? The roof falling in on me or uh, whatever things that you could make up that might happen in the next moment that would just 
cause it all to come crashing down and that even kill me. You know, we live incredibly safe lives. And so it doesn't make sense for the core part of our nervous system to be wired for sort of moment-to-moment hypervigilance in a way, right, which gives us this sense of fundamental discontentment, however it shows up for us. And some people that I'll talk to, they'll say, oh, well, I don't really have that. I'm, you know, I live a really happy life or whatever. And I'm like, okay, do you have goals? Well, sure, you know, I've got goals. Well, what are your goals? This, that, the other thing, right? Um, if you've got goals, it's because in this moment, something does not seem right, doesn't seem enough. Uh, you know, these things, they all deeply go back to increased safety for us and all of that. So we don't have an hour to talk about that today. But the fundamental change that occurs seems to be around a shift at the deepest level of the human nervous system away from this moment-to-moment sense uh, of vigilance that every animal's system has. I mean, you throw a crumb to a bird when you're eating outside, a little piece of bread, um, and the bird pecks at it, right? And then it immediately starts looking around for what might kill it. And when it convinces it's safe again, it takes another peck at it. It doesn't just sit there and savor the bread and pay no attention to its surroundings. It's got that same hypervigilance that all animals do, just a little bit more on display than humans do. So the major difference that occurs with the shift to fundamental well-being is a shift inside of us where that goes away. And when that goes away, when it shifts from a fundamental sense of sort of vigilance and, which, and the discontentment around that and whatever else to a fundamental sense that everything is okay, uh, a fundamental sense of sort of wholeness, a fundamental sense of, of peace, a very deep sense of peace, because the brain is sort of you know, built up in layers uh, and it's a giant inhibition machine more than it is anything else. There's so much activity. If you just took all the governors off, it would just be this burst of raging activity. And so a lot of the brain is about, you know, restricting activity and, and um, getting, you know, functional and whatever else. But, the, but it's basically all built up in a series of layers. Imagine the foundation of that changing to a sense of safety, to a sense of peace, to a sense that everything is okay. Um, instead of the exact opposite of that and how that just makes the weight of the world lift off you and how it makes your experience of the world so completely different. And so regardless of what type of experience someone uh, regardless of whether it's you know a certain type of non-dual experience or whether it's a certain type of uh, divine love type experience or whatever, all of which we've cataloged, um, what's at the heart of all of it is that switch that change and so if you're a common chorus that's your common core piece and then you can go above that to you know the more of the constructivist stuff of cats where it's you know if you grow up in the in the in the jesus side of things probably your experience is going to be shaped in a certain direction if you grow up in a certain buddhist side or a certain hindu side depending upon the sex and whatnot it's going to be shaped according to those sex and and so on and you can also of course there's lots of atheist agnostics in our research as well you don't have to be religious or spiritual at all to have this shift occur in your nervous system. And then there's often a greater connection to nature and things like that. And I gave you a lot there, so I'll pause. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's really good material. So, you know, if I look at a uh, an individual that's probably uh, perhaps struggling with money and mm-hmm. they have an opportunity for a free uh, wealth seminar and they they mm-hmm. it doesn't even hit hit their radar, and mm-hmm. they're still struggling with money. And here's another opportunity to 
to come out of that paradigm and they don't engage it. So my point is, mm-hmm. or rather my question, no no need for a point, is mm-hmm. um, yoga, meditation, um, um, religion, education, all these mechanisms have been around for thousands of years and yet there's just a ton of humanity that's wringing their hands every night. It, mm-hmm. and, and it's that angst of what's going to happen. And, and it might not be related to a, a carnivore coming in tune on their ass, but um, right. especially <laughs> especially in 2020, there's uh, social media is showing yeah. me how deeply afraid people mm-hmm. are. They think if they go to the store, they will certainly die, and placebos work both ways. I mean, if you convince mm-hmm. people that there's something in the air that will kill their ass and they don't feel worthy of life, out the door they go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So so in your process in six weeks or less, how do you um, break that stigma of of the human uh, behavioral trait, if you will. I mean, shed some light on that. It's a great question. You know, why, if you've had all of this stuff around for so long, aren't more people experiencing this, right? That's sort of the heart of it. Uh, how much of it relates to belief, cultural programming, you know, stuff like that. What we actually believe at this point is that and this goes against what everyone else says. I recognize that. On the other hand, we're the ones with all the data. So it's backed by data. Um, what we've come to believe at this point is that the transition is actually not the hard part. Um, now, I get that like, that's, if somebody's out there and they're interested in this topic and they've been researching it and watching people's YouTube videos and going to seminars and maybe even going on retreats and all of that, they're like, what do you mean? Like nobody that goes on these retreats with me ever transitions or whatever else, right? And in fact, one of the things that surprised me when we were in the early phase of our research and we were interviewing a lot of spiritual teachers, I would always ask them, hey, you know, who do you have? You know, we're looking for more research subjects. Who do you have that you've transitioned? Um, you know, from your, you know, your community that we can interview. And oftentimes the answer was that they weren't sure that they'd ever transitioned to anybody, uh, which right. just was stunning to us. So we're like, what the heck, how's that possible? You spent like the last 30 years of your life doing that. <laughs> like how, how, I mean, it was just, it was, we couldn't even comprehend that answer and we heard it all the time. Right. And so I get that, you know, this notion that it's actually almost trivial the transition is um, the opposite of what everyone else is saying. And it it needs a little bit of explanation. And then, of course, the follow-on question is, okay, so if that's the easy part, what's the hard part, right? So so the the transition itself, what we think is that it's primarily about finding the method that matches your sort of psychophysiological system, if you will. Um, And so imagine it's, you know, 500 years ago and you're in Europe. Um, You know, the methods available to you are essentially, you know, a couple of Christian methods, right? Uh, You would have never run across the Buddhist stuff, the Hindu stuff, uh, later philosophical stuff, and later cognitive science hacks and things like that. They've never been invented. Um, And, you know, for each of these methods, a relatively tiny percentage of people 
is likely to match up with most of them. And so over time, you might get lucky, right? Let's say you take a method, let's make, maybe it's got a 2 or 3% success rate at any given time, right? If you practice that method for 80 years, maybe at some point in that 80-year span, your system will come enough into alignment that at some point it will work for you. Probably not. You're probably going to die having never had it work for you. But, you know, there's some chance that if it doesn't work for you initially, you might change enough over the course of your lifespan for your psychology and your physiology, that whole sort of system, the system that is us in our totality, to come into alignment with it. Well, what, what really caught our eye was starting around 1996, there's an uptick. There seems to be a, quite a significant uptick in the number of people that reported transitioning to this after that point versus before that point. And, you know, we had that date for a long time, and I sort of it didn't really occur to me what, had, what that meant until I was talking to, um, I was at um, basically the World Economic Forum, the Davos sort of uh, gathering, and I was talking to one of the people who invented the Internet, um, and one of the things that they said was, uh, oh, well, about 1996, there was, you know, the certain amount of information density in the world. Uh, you know, you basically had a certain amount of information density that had occurred on the Internet and was available to much more people than had ever been the case before in humanity. Um, and what that really sort of made me realize was that there was this point where all of a sudden you weren't, it wasn't like you were 500 years ago in, um, in Europe. You know, you had, and of course, if you're in America, there are plenty of, you know, Eastern teachers that had come through, some methods were known, whatever else. But now, like, the sheer access to knowledge is so amazing. Uh, and by this point, that's sort of the kick-in point. And so after that, you have this curve where a lot more people are transitioning. So why is it that they're transitioning? Uh, it seemed like, okay, well, maybe they're just getting more exposed to the different ways to do this. And then a little bit uh, later on, we had this situation where um, we, I had always thought we will transition people with technology, and we're, we're getting to that point now. Uh, but, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't there, right? And so there was this moment where it was just clear to us that we weren't going to be transitioning people with technology anytime soon. That just the brain stimulation technologies weren't far enough along that we needed to use. And so if we wanted to collect before and after data, if instead of just going out and interviewing people who said, I'm non-dual, uh, and collecting data from them and measuring them after the fact, after they've been non-dual for, you know, a week, a month, a year, very rarely it was those times. It was always like, you know, three years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, right? Um, if, if we wanted to get data on who someone was before, what changed in them during, and who they were after, we could not rely on technology for that. It wasn't going to be neurostimulation. It wasn't going to be neurofeedback, not anytime soon. And so we went back to the data, and one of the things that I did was I had a research assistant um, basically look at a question that, that we'd ignored. And it's, it's kind of, it always sort of amazes people that we ignored this. But there was this question that we, we asked people a lot of stuff. We gave people a lot of measures. There was a lot of data we had. We have data that we've never even looked at still to this day from that early research just because we've collected so much stuff. Um, there was this one question on an intake form, and that question basically said, what was it do you think worked for you to transition you? Now, I know most people would have probably been like, wouldn't that be the first question you'd look at? Uh, but 
I had thought that these people were very biased. They didn't seem to really be able to accurately report a lot of that. And, um, and, you know, when you've got all of these teachers basically telling you, I'm not sure I've ever even woken anybody up. Um, you, you just, I mean, that sentence, I just sort of assumed that that was going to be wrong. And so we didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And we were trying to really understand what it was that was happening to people. We weren't working on how to get people there back then. And so now we, you know, we fast forward a number of years and we are starting to work on how to get people there. It becomes clear we're not going to do it with technology anytime soon. And so we start thinking, okay, what else do we have laying around that might shed some light on this? And it's that question. So we have a research assistant go and sort of, you know, look at all the answers to that question and sort them. And, and it wound up being a relatively small handful of methods. And I thought, you know, that's really fascinating because most of these people had done a lot of stuff to try to transition. Uh, by that point, we had like, you know, 1,200 people. And uh, we'd, way, we'd left, you know, the teachers behind a long time ago. And there were a lot of ordinary people who experienced this. And they had tried a ton of stuff over the years to try to transition. And so why is it that there's this relatively small number of things that's actually working for them? And then even more interestingly, you might have somebody who had tried, let's say there's six things, and there's more, you know, but it's a ballpark, right? So just as a representative example, there's six things. Someone might have tried all six of those and had, you know, then said, this is the one that worked. And then the next person might have tried all six of them, and it was a different one that worked, right? And then the next person might have said, oh, I tried four of them, and it was this one that worked, and it might not have been one that either of the other people had worked for them. And so it just became kind of a no-brainer, obvious thing that there was some sort of matching thing going on here. You know, you had all of these people that had tried all of this different stuff. That these handful of really good things seemed to have sort of risen to the top, and then it's not that's not enough like me just giving you a list and being like here's 20 things um you know you have to then on that list sort of figure out which are the things that work best for you because you're different than your best friend or your spouse or your religious leader or you know your meditation teacher or whoever uh, and right. so that was a big aha moment. And that, to me, it's such a simple thing. There's nothing magical about it. There's nothing special about it. It's just good, old-fashioned, scientific, qualitative, in this case, research um, that led to this aha moment. And then we set about testing it. We created protocols with those. Um, and, you know, we got to the – we have to the you – know, the title of this show is, you know, Awaken in Six Weeks or whatever – because basically we're at the point of a 65% success rate with a six-week protocol of people giving us, you know, an hour and a half or so a day, an hour of dedicated practice time, and then some, a little bit of time when you wake up and a little bit of time when you go to bed. That could be five minutes. That could be, I, mean, I round up to 15 minutes for each one of those, even though I don't think people really use 15 minutes. Um, so it's probably less than uh, an hour and a half, uh, all told. But the... It's, it's, it, it actually is quite simple. Uh, and it's another one of those things that's just enabled by the global communication network uh, and the global knowledge base that's been built and the access to information that we have today and all of that. It's kind of amazing. Well, this conversation we're having right now, um, what's the probability of having this kind of a conversation um, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. The, uh, I like the idea of the Internet um, 
and that critical mass, so to speak, of 1996, or I think it was, you said. Um, what about yeah. the, kind of the hundredth monkey, if you will? Do you think there's an element of, as more and more people make that transition um, and and get their uh, switch flipped on, so to speak, that it becomes uh, uh, an easier or maybe even a more automatic or semi-automatic um, probability for others? I don't know. You know, I, our research doesn't have anything to say about that in terms of its data. I, you know, I know people like uh, Rupert Sheldrick, uh, who I've had conversations with around stuff like this, who's done a lot of research in this area, uh, who I think are, you know, I mean, I think Rupert's a, a brilliant, hardcore scientist. Um, I don't have any reason to doubt his results. Um, and he certainly feels that these types of sort of tendencies um, get laid down, uh, sort of deeper and deeper grooves in the road for people to fall into and follow. Um, and so I, you know, I don't see why that, I, you know, I don't think we, we know so little about the nature of consciousness and reality and whatnot to begin with. Uh, it's insane for anybody to just say, oh, that's impossible, right? <laughs> we have right. no idea what's possible or what's impossible. So, you know, you have a great guy like him uh, who's just done, a, a, you know, an incredible lifelong research project uh, in that direction. Uh, I, don't see, I don't see anything that disproves it. There's nothing in our data and in our, in our work, really, that informs it, though. So... We've been talking about the individual consciousness, the awakening of a person, the persistent awakening. Now, what about the collective consciousness? Because uh, there's there's so many people that put their weight on the notion of a savior or some deity that incarnates on earth and they're going to kick karma's ass all the way to hell and salvation will be upon us. When we... <laughs> When we uh, right, right. when we look at the conundrum of the collective, I mean the the more or less suffering of humanity. Do you see a a fulcrum or a a vehicle, if you will, of change to the collective that is uh, achievable through the individual persona? I do, and I think it's – in this, this is where I said, you know, there's an easy part and there's a hard part to this. Uh, the easy part, I think, is the transition part. Um, the harder part is what happens after the transition. And so um, what we have found in, in recent research in the last couple of years um, is that a lot of people who say that they're interested in transitioning to this type of thing, who say they're interested in some, you know, fundamental well-being, persistent non-symbolic experience, persistent awakening, whatever we want to call it, um, they have this. They have a fear of it, and they have a fear of it for a very good reason. It's because a lot of the people that are out there in public writing the books and making the videos about it and whatever. They, they kind of frankly have scary stories, right? And so you have somebody like Eckhart Tolle who sold, you know, tens of millions of books, been on media all around the world. Um, you know, any seeker has at some point run a, has probably read one of Tolle's books, right? 
Um, and one of his core pieces of his story is, you know, I transitioned and then, you know, I spent a couple of years on a park bench outside of Cambridge's library or whatever it was. Um, and that sounds horrifying to the average person, right? And there are all of these stories out there. They're, you know, they look at these people's lives and they say, okay, well, the spiritual path sounds wonderful, but I've got this mortgage and I've got these kids to raise and I've got, okay. you know, so on and so forth, right? Um, and that is a really legitimate concern because when you transition, there is an unquestioned increasing pull towards what I like to use as a slang term, the cave, in essence. You know, there is this, there is this process that seems to sort of take over in your psychology um, that, that wants isolation from other people, increasing isolation. It wants increasing isolation from society. Um, and there's a really good reason for that because society and other people still have that other, they still have the other switch flipped, right? And so what we might think of as standard egoic or whatever we want to call it, psychology that people have, you're very out of phase with that now. And your system doesn't really want to be around it. And, you know, if you're, unless you're living in nature, you're immersed in it. You know, I'm sitting in a house right now. It's a house that was built in the late 1800s. It's a, you know, sort of a beautiful old double brick Victorian house. Um, but this and everything that I'm looking at in this house itself, around the room that I can see, the rooms that I can see, and so on, um, it's all come out of someone's head. It's all mind. I'm sitting right now inside of other people's minds smushed together with the minds that have decorated this space, right? Uh, when you walk around a city, you're based, it's, all the, it's all sort of the egoic mind. Everywhere you go, you can't escape it. Even in a park, like what put the trees in certain spots was the egoic mind sort of designing it, right? And so you have this sense when you transition to this increasingly of a pull to nature, of a pull to isolation away from the egoic. Um, you're totally fine being with other people that experience this type of thing. Um, but uh, they're, they're, so, so that's a problem in contemporary humanity, right? Because if we were to just push a button, let's say that we, you know, our group was successful and tomorrow we made a device that could transition you to this in three and a half seconds, right? If you just push that button and then you have all of humanity sort of have this increasing pull towards nature, towards, you know, isolation or towards clustering with other people sort of they're like them to some degree, but also um, still a pull towards solitude because the brain is sort of unraveling old processes and it's, you know, trying to get this sort of uh, to sort of these new places. Um, that's a that's a genuine sort of cultural societal problem. I'm not. I've done so many so much research on these folks, experienced it myself at this point. Um, is, you know, I am not someone who just thinks we just need to wake a bunch of people up and that's going to be it. It's going to be you know world peace. All of our problems are going to be solved. Uh, whatever else. This is not the, the way this was solved in other cultures and in past times was really effective, right? I mean, if you wanted this, you went to the monastery in Buddhism, right? If you were Hindu and you wanted this, you waited until you were retired and your earthly responsibilities were over and you were just grandpa sitting on the porch, right? Uh, all of these different groups, Christians also had their monasteries, right? As did the other 
Abrahamic traditions. Um, all of these different groups have their own sort of solutions that make an enormous, enormous amount of sense from our research-based perspective. But we're not in those times anymore, right? And so now there's this need for, after you transition, for integrating in with the world in an optimum way. And that world is very much, you know, the opposite of the state of consciousness that you find yourself in. Um, and there isn't a well, strong desire to want to do that. Well, and I, so that's a lot of our current work right now. It's helping people with that. Your experience, I understand what you're saying. So you you make the transition and and harmony has a has a much more eloquence to it than downtown New York City traffic on a weekday morning. And uh, but I think uh, the persona, I think it's a phase you go through. And if like if if I am broadcasting um, energy through a medium and I and I I bump up against some attenuation or some impedance, and it it um, depletes that energy. Then, um, then it takes more effort to um, have the effect I want because there's a loss in it. But I suggest I suggest that in the spiritual oh, shit, I'm using metaphors. Um, in the spiritual awakening um, modality, I, the vehicle, the the karmic imprinting of the persona over one or many lifetimes, as you unravel the um, incongruence of your consciousness, the more incongruent you are inside your own persona, the more the outside... Um, turbulence has an effect on you. In other words, if uh, if if there's a crowd at a basketball game and somebody's head on the player, and the player turns around and and gives an impersonal, could you just shut the f up? And and that's a wave of anger, and it, and it goes into the crowd. Every single person will have a completely different experience based on their relationship with anger within themselves. So what I'm getting at, I'm getting long-winded here, but what mm -hmm. I'm getting at, I think there's a point where it doesn't bother you near as much to go into the turbulence, into the chaos of the um, um, of our society, and it, it doesn't unravel you as much as it does before you've, you've done the work, so to speak. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's what we've seen, because we can look across so many people, thousands of people at this point, um, is we see very distinctive developmental cycles, just like a normal, just like normally goic human, human psychology has, you know, a series of developmental stages. This also has sort of its own developmental stages. You know? So, for instance, the first couple of years after someone's transition wind up being extremely important. The brain is doing a lot of unraveling of those types of condition patterns that you're talking about. Uh, and after about the first year or so, there's sort of a bottoming out to that process. And then there's sort of a, a rewiring that's occurring in the brain. Um, and that shows up subjectively in different ways. So one way that it often shows up for people is a, is a sharp fall off in motivation. 
because typically before this, their motivation was neurotic, you know, and I don't mean that in a negative way, just a factual way. And so uh, we see huge drops in neuroticism on personality measures that we give people that transition to this. And what that simply means is that they were basically driven by things that, you know, probably were never really true. Um, uh, just, you know, past traumas and uh, past programming around not being enough uh, and all of that, right? And so, you know, they were forcing their way up some job ladder or, um, you know, whatever they were doing, they were incurring all of this sort of pain and struggle and resistance and whatever in their life. And then they have this transition, everything is fine. And they're like, okay, well, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. That seems pointless to me now. You know, I, so what if I become the vice president of whatever? Like, what is that? That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't add anything to me. I'm whole as I am right now. Why would I want to go through all that pain to get to that level? Uh, whereas up to that moment in time, right, their entire life had been spent like an arrow towards that level, and they were willing to sacrifice anything to get there, right? Uh, so that's an extreme example, but that's the gist that I'm trying to, to convey here, right? So over the first year or so, there's this drop. Uh, that people often experience in motivation. And then starting usually around and in the second year, um, what comes up is is basically a a new type of motivation that bubbles up from a deeper place in them, if you will. Um, And so then there's this this goal of sort of bringing one's life more into sort of congruence with that and whatever. Well, that's if you just sort of, you know, if you just take your hand off the wheel, and of course this all feels completely true, right? It feels like on top of everything else, it feels like the most true thing that you've ever experienced. And so like the, what, it just seems like such a no-brainer to just fall into it and trust this process and let this process unfold uh, exactly as it should. And so, you know, okay, the high-powered job or whatever it was is out. Maybe the marriage is out. Um, you know, whatever else was being sort of driven by that neuroses that you just now or so just doesn't seem to make any sense or whatever, right? And then new motivations come in, life changes, you know, you, before you were a corporate, you know, securities attorney, and now you're an energy healer two years later or whatever, right? Like there's so yeah. many of these types of stories. Uh, and so what we say is, listen, this is a pattern. This is what your brain is doing in this time. It's unraveling this old. It's this new. And if you really sort of educate people about what's going on in a more complex way than we have time with what remains in the show today, uh, people can understand, oh, that's what's going on, right? And, they, and you can stay in your job. You don't have to, you know, leave your job as the securities attorney or leave your family uh, or whatever else to sort of feel like you're being authentic and, you know, allowing this process of peace to unfold. And so, you know, these two-year cycles, seven-year cycle, uh, so on, um, is, is once you have an overview of the landscape, you can manage much more effectively. Once you know sort of the best practices, to, you know, to navigate these things, you avoid, know the pitfalls to avoid, you know, the day after awakening, you don't tell everybody about it because you sound like a raving, you know, you sound like you're crazy. You sound a bit like a raving lunatic oftentimes, right? Uh, and so, and your wife starts worrying or your husband starts worrying about whether you've lost your marbles and uh, then things, you know, happen to people. And so keep it to yourself for a little while, figure out a good way to talk about it, you know, get some language that isn't just you sort of blurting out how you're experiencing the world now find some context in the other person's belief system to help, you know, have a more 
you know, effective conversation about it. And there's just so many things like that. There's, we put up, there's so, there's, these things are so important that we put up a free mini course for people that experience this at a site called explorerscourse.com because we're like, geez, you know, people just have to know these things. Um, You don't want to hit that two year period, how you manage that two year period and how you come out of the two year period with how your nervous system and your brain and whatnot are programmed, your psychology is programmed. It very much determines whether or not you're, you know, 10 years from then you're going to be sleeping under a bridge or you're going to have a fantastic life. Uh, there's no reason you can't have a fantastic integrated life with sort of the normal world and still have this tremendous experience of, you know, fundamental well-being. Well, very nice. Time can fly by pretty fast. Um, sure I'd can. love to continue this conversation either on or off the air in the future and uh, I welcome you back on the show when the opportunity presents itself but I want to make sure the audience knows about you and your platform, your books any services that you offer, give us the whole perspective of your, the work you do and how our audience can engage it Sure, thank you, there's a publications page at nonsymbolic.org that has all kinds of information, interviews. This interview will be up there, I'm sure, before it's too terribly long. Um, Actually, it's a live interview. It's so rare these days. So it'll be up there right away, probably. Um, A book that summarizes some of the um, sort of the core research around the different types of this that's called The Finders. Uh, We like to say that seekers become finders. Uh, there's the explorerscourse.com mini course that I mentioned a minute ago. That's this free course that we have out there for people uh, that think that they're experiencing this to really sort of help them contextualize it. Uh, we've got a couple of research uh, programs and protocols that help people to transition. We have a four-month one called the Finders Course that was our very first one. Uh, it's our most researched one. And then there's the six-week one that I just mentioned, uh, which actually came about as COVID. We had to shut down the lab, couldn't be zapping people's brains anymore and stuff like that. And so we started experimenting with a shorter protocol earlier this year, and that's worked out really well. Uh, that's at uh, 45daystoawakening.com or 45days.one. There's two different sites that point to the same place. Uh, my website, Dr. Jeffrey Martin. And I can go on. You know how it is. There's... We all have so many things that we're doing. (laughs) Well, I had a hunch we'd have a vibrant conversation, and I think we hit that on the head. I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah. Um, Thanks for being our guest. Thank you. We've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey Martin, and the topic tonight has been Persistent awakening in just six weeks or less. You know, the I suggest to you the strongest, the most powerful elixir, the most powerful substance in our human condition is our own consciousness. There's nothing more powerful than this this consciousness, this this juice, this electricity that animates us as uh, as human beings. Um, Every one of us can be inspired in this moment and take a new trajectory into our future that brings completely different outcomes. When humanity is is anxious for a new 
paradigm, a new narrative that is perhaps more authentic, more harmonious with life itself, it's going to come through people like you and me. It's going to show up as an inspiration, an inspired moment, an aha um, moment, if you will. So don't think that you are not part of the big equation here. You can be the vehicle of that change. When I stare at the tea leaves about what's possible for the future, I think there's a whole lot of institutionalized iguana doo-doo that's going to fall apart. In other words, if you go to a phone book and, and look at places to fix your car, there's 20 pages of that. But if your electricity goes out, there's typically just one number you can call. So in the future, I see more of a honeycomb. Instead of a pyramid, a honeycomb where everything is reproducible within five or ten miles from where we live. And so the sustainability of our day in and day out life becomes much more graceful and and um easily navigated so we can rest at ease more and more. So when you get an inspiration that might not make sense to the old caterpillar mind, don't throw it out the door. Let it percolate in your persona. Typically you'll get more inspiration and you can be the vehicle that brings in a new paradigm, a new operative, a new narrative for the entire human race. How cool is that? Hey, we're out of time. It's always a pleasure. It's my joy. It's my pleasure to bring you episodes like this because I know you can kick some serious ass in a in a joyful and delightful way. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast to bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's latest book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.